Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and we are live in a pub, or pub-like environment. It's actually a burger joint, but they serve brews, and uh, we're glad to be with you. And uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I am a uh, former professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor, and I've written books. But enough about me. There are other guys who join me every week on the Theology Pugcast, and why don't we uh, have those guys introduce themselves. Tom. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I've sold no real estate, <laughs> um, but I've taught for a long time. I play a little guitar as that's well right, and, right. uh, and uh, other things, um, but that's enough for me now. <laughs> right, right. Glenn. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I also have not sold real estate. Uh, I don't play much guitar, but I do play a bunch of woodwinds. Yeah, including uh, bagpipes. Yes. Yeah, German bagpipes. German bagpipes. We've got to make sure that people understand right. that's not the sky and all that kind of stuff. All right. right. Well, anyway, uh, we're glad to have you again with us at the Theology Podcast. I just, we don't say this very often, uh, but we ought to say it more often. We really do appreciate all the folks who support the show financially. We were just talking about that a little while ago. Uh, there have been different ways that people have helped us out over, over the last couple of years. One has been our Kickstarter campaigns, and those have been a success. We've done two of them, and each was a success. And then there are actually people who give to us through their podcast vehicle or, you know, uh, of choice, you know, kind of the, the, the platform of choice. You know, some people listen to us on Spotify. Some people listen to us on Anchor. Some people listen to us even on iTunes. You know, so there are different places people listen to us, and they give us money uh, in the ways that they can through those uh, platforms. But we also have folks who support us on a monthly basis through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we really are grateful uh, for the gifts because they really do help us uh, pay for just different things that are that need to be done. And, and uh, so thank you very much for that. The other thing I want to say is if you have an opportunity and you really like the show, uh, please tell the world so by giving us five stars or whatever the, the thing is you do on the platform you listen to us on. Uh, that helps. And we don't talk about that stuff very much, but uh, the reason why a lot of people do talk about that stuff on other shows is because it works. People, <laughs> we, just, we just forget to mention it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and, and, and it is worth uh, thanking people. I mean, I've, uh, a few lines of thanks. I mean, thanks for the people who, I mean, we've run some courses yeah. um, through Fight, Laugh, Feast. They participated, wonderful audience, wonderful bunch. We thank people for their questions. Yeah. We get tons of them. I apologize for not being able to keep up. I do right. aim right. to get to them, and I am working <laughs> at it. Um, and hopefully we will get a hold of those uh, very soon. And then also we have a little grumblers group, I guess. Yeah, Remember these yeah. guys? The and I have seen very interesting conversations yeah, yeah. on that. I do read them. I just don't have a, t a time right now to respond, but we do really appreciate it. Hey, we got a couple of friends who have arrived. Hey, come on in, have a seat. We are uh, joined by some folks who listen to us normally, but uh, are actually with us in the restaurant today. So anyway, uh, let's jump into it. Glenn, it's your day. What are we talking about? What we're going to look at is worldview, science, and aesthetics. Ooh. And as per usual, I'm going to start, oh, a good thousand years ago. Excellent. Um, we, we need to get a running start into things. That's right. That's <laughs> um, so in the 12th century, uh -huh. there was a... Um, 
a number of things happened in Europe in terms of intellectual life. There was a, a burst of uh, work in education, creating cathedral schools, things like that. And then those will evolve in the next century into universities. And then along with that, we also see the movement of um, ideas from Aristotle coming in from Muslim Spain is starting in that period and so on. And during this period, there's a worldview that actually emerges out of what had come before and this new intellectual activity that's going on that some historians have called platonic humanism. Okay. And the idea here is that uh, the, you know, the basic summary of it is the world came from God. God created the world. Therefore, studying the world, looking at the world uh, as it is, can lead us back to God. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we can sort of reverse engineer it or think our way gotcha. back to God through studying it. Uh, it's platonic in the sense that it has a very strong uh, idealist component, the idea that, you know, God's thoughts underlie the universe. Right. And that there's an interconnection between things in the universe through, through God's mind. Uh, but it's humanistic in the sense that it believes that human beings have the capability of taking a look at what God did and following through on it to understand it. Now, the reason why this idea is, real, is important is, you know, for our purposes today, is it's going to really shape a lot of things that are going on in medieval thought and art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to put a particular focus on that today. Uh, first of all, in terms of thought, one of the consequences of this is that if, in fact, the world does come from God and therefore studying the world can right. lead us back to God, reveal the mind of God, then it's important for us to actually study the world, right. which is to say, don't just think about it. Don't just come up with your concept of how things ought to be or should be or anything like that. Actually study it. So this is empiricism or a sort of proto-empiricism. Yeah, this, right? is, this is proto-empiricism. In and, fact, you, uh, yeah. And it's very different than, say, Epicurus, mm-hmm. who, whose turn to nature was really about um, defending a certain morality, not understanding nature in a way to actually be discerning something higher than that. Right. And, you know, we would normally associate this kind of thing with, with Aristotle, say. You know, right. uh, the great debate between Plato and Aristotle uh, was that Plato believed that the uh, thing that underlies reality is the realm of ideas, forms, archetypes, uh, whereas Aristotle believed that it is the particulars in this world that were the thing that was fundamental and the ideals or the ideas are derived from the particulars. So is the emphasis on this world or is the emphasis on the, uh, the non-physical? Now, as a result, Aristotle is seen in a lot of ways almost as an empiricist, although there are some problems with that. For example, Aristotle believed that women had fewer teeth than men. Never bothered to check. Yeah, well, (laughs) there are are a couple of possibilities here. Um, Either he didn't know how to count, he never bothered to check, or he had very strange taste in women. (laughs) But, but, you know, so he he isn't the empiricist people make him out to be because... He had a set of ideas about the way the world worked, and those governed even things like what is it that's worth looking at. Right, right. Okay. Now, no need to look in her mouth. We right. know what's there. <laughs> right. Fewer teeth. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually all of that revolves around 
Aristotle's ideas about women, which would get me in real trouble if I went through those right now. But, but and your wife is sitting right next to you. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, yeah, let's not go there. Yeah. yeah um, yeah, let's not. Um, so, but when you're getting into the 12th century, you're beginning to find people, uh, interestingly enough, particularly in England, and many of them Franciscans, yeah. who are going to um, begin studying Aristotle and actually, for the first time, understanding what the implications of his methodology are and applying it. Uh, one of the key figures here is uh, a guy by the name of Robert Grosstest. Uh, I, I have to say Grosstest yeah, is a rather right. unfortunate name. That's right. <laughs> so we are talking about empiricism, and there are a lot of things that you test empirically that are really gross. Well, yeah. It, well, the, the other part of this is that the word Grosstest can be translated as fathead. Yeah, um, that too. But, I've known a lot of fathead scientists. <laughs> but, uh, but in any event, Grosstest came up with uh, a, a, an approach he called uh, a re a composition and resolution, which is essentially an early form of the scientific method based on his studies of Aristotle. He came up with ideas that mathematics was the foundation for science, hmm. or what we call science, um, and so on. There's a whole bunch of things that he's doing. And then in the next generation, uh, overlapping with him, you get someone like Roger Bacon. Mm -hmm. And Bacon, uh, Bacon is one of these guys we could do an entire show on, and uh, I probably will at some point. But for our purposes here, Bacon was so interested in this issue of, you know, if we are actually going to access the mind of God, we have to study the world as it really is. So he is involved in what we would describe as experimental science, but he also carried that over to Scripture and argued that we should be studying the Scripture in the original languages, not just the Vulgate. Hmm. He's the only guy I know of in the Middle Ages who argued that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, so and so you're you're seeing these kinds of things going on. This emphasis on let's see what the world really looks like. Let's see what it is really doing, and then we will it will reveal something about God. Now, interestingly enough, though, because Aristotle showed up in this period coming out of Spain, there was a tendency for people. I mean, Aristotle is brilliant. He's, he's he is he's a genius beyond imagining in a lot of ways. And the assumption was that if Aristotle said something about anything, he must have been right. right. He was referred to as the master or the teacher of those who know. Right, right. Now, what that meant is that what we call science, studies of the natural world, were completely dominated by Aristotle and Aristotle's physics. Now, this changed in the year 1277 when the University of Paris issued a series of condemnations of ideas that it just forbade teaching on. Most of these revolved things like necromancy, um, mm -hmm. some courtly love things, but there were a number of things from Aristotle as well. And the point was that you cannot use Aristotle as an independent source in theology. Mm -hmm. Now, since studies of the natural world reveal the mind of God, they were considered theology, right. natural, theology. natural theology. And yeah. so what this did, oddly enough, by banning the use of Aristotle as an independent source of theology, it actually freed up medieval thought. Interesting. So because, this is one of those because, law of unintended consequences. Well, it not, I'm not sure how unintended it was, 
But, you know, we think that the idea of banning ideas is bad. Mm -hmm. In this case, Aristotle had such a stranglehold on people's minds Mm -hmm. that by banning teaching him, it allowed a great deal of of freedom and creativity. But that's the, I guess that's what I'm getting at when we think about unintended consequences in a positive Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Usually when we say unintended consequences, we mean it like in a negative sense. Like we, we wish that hadn't happened, we didn't intend it to happen. But... That, that point that you just made, that sometimes when we think of, uh, you know, sort of we idealize freedom of thought to the point where we, we lose a sense of the sort of our ability to evaluate things because we don't have any structures, any boundaries for, for, uh, mm-hmm. to direct our thought. So, you know, we see this, for example, in architecture. Uh, I've got friends who are architects, and they tell me that one of the worst things that you can do for an architect is just give them a blank sheet of paper and say, just do anything you want. What they need is a sense of the land, what is already present that prohibits certain things. And because certain things are prohibited, then their creative energies are channeled in a different direction. Now, another example of this would be uh, beer commercials. Mm-hmm. I know this is, re- we've gone from the Middle Ages and the... Fr- and the, <laughs> the beer prob- is a good medieval. <laughs> <That's, that's laughs> they would know. have had them if they... <laughs> but, but do, 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 you know, I, I don't think most folks are aware that you're not allowed to show someone drinking beer in a beer commercial. Huh. So because you can't show someone drinking beer in a beer commercial, that forced people to stop showing people drinking beer in beer commercials and have them, having them say, mmm, that was good, to... to <laughs> to do actually, you know, doing something else to sell the product of beer in a fun and attractive and sort of engaging way. And that's why we, all the beer commercials are some of the best commercials on television. Well, let, let's add to that that the, you know, in, in the opposite direction, uh, when there used to be speech codes, uh, speech codes in the sense of, of, yeah. of language you aren't allowed to use in public on television or radio or whatever, right. um, once those were lifted... It killed humor. Yes. It killed comedy because all that was left were was people using right. off-color language and, right. and Lenny Bruce. Whereas, yeah. Whereas Thank it you. used to be that you had to do you had to think much more creatively to try to get your laugh rather than just go towards catology. Well, and the same thing with regard to film. When we think about you know those codes, what mm-hmm. you can show in a film, what you can't show in a film. Well, this sort of released the sort of the creative powers of euphemism right. in film mm-hmm. so that you would get a, a point across in a way that naive or innocent or young people wouldn't get. But everybody else who's watching the film says, oh, I know what just happened. Well, Double indemnity is like a, mm-hmm. a, a classic example of that. Yeah, well, this happened exactly in, in Soviet Russia. I mean, Tarkovsky's works are what they are because he learned how to communicate the spiritual in film in ways that weren't... Um, on, on kind of surface level and, and direct with language because he was being censored. So he creates a sort of spirituality in his film and his understanding of, of material reality is as, uh, in, you know, infused, if you will. Um, so, so what we're saying is that the, the regime change in the United States will be really great for evangelical art. <laughs> That's right. We will see some of the because best we will art not be and pr- theology we've never seen before. That's right. Whereas before, when we had freedom of religion, we couldn't say anything worth hearing. Well, now... Interesting. Well, we're doing this on the next show, but interesting. Don't let me forget that point. Don't let me forget that point. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get you back to it. So tune in next time, podcast listeners. Yeah. Anyway, now, we've, we've actually already started moving into the direction of aesthetics. So let's talk about what platonic humanism yeah. does to aesthetics. 
by the early 13th century, the early 1200s, there's a decided shift that occurs in Northern European art, not in Italy, because these ideas aren't really getting the same kind of traction in Italy because Italy is really centered primarily on law rather than theology and other issues in, in their education, um, in their higher education at least. But in any event, what you see happening is a decided shift toward realism in art. So we're thinking like the Netherlands, places like that? Well, uh, the first place we, we see it is arguably on some of the sculptors on Ramps Cathedral in France, but then in spades by the middle of the century in a, a cathedral in Naumburg in Germany, where in the mortuary chapel of this, uh, uh, this cathedral, it, it's the burial place for the, the Dukes of Naumburg, um, and the around the mortuary chapel, there are about a dozen life-size statues that are realistic enough that if you saw the person walking down the street, you would know who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're incredibly detailed, incredibly realistic. They almost look like they ought to be breathing. Mm-hmm. And what's also really interesting is that they're interacting with each other across the space. Mm-hmm. You kind of know who likes who and who's mad at who <laughs> and who really wants to stick a knife in whom. <laughs> um, Even after death. One of them, uh, the... the uh, the Duke of Naumburg at this time was a guy by the name of Eckhart. His wife was Uta. Uta was, to the Germans, the most beautiful woman of the Middle Ages, sort of like the Eleanor of Aquitaine of Germany. Uta, I've got to remember this. Um, and Uta of Naumburg, the statue of her is so beautiful that when Adolf Hitler wanted to portray the perfect Aryan woman, he used Uta's image. Interesting. Um, now, her husband didn't exactly measure up, so he picked another guy called the Bamberg Rider as the ideal <laughs> man, probably done by the same sculptor. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about that as sort of an aside in terms of American culture is that Disney was one of the first people who really took a disliking to Hitler over here. Uh-huh. And while Hitler was busy promoting Uta as the ideal Aryan woman, Disney was doing the first full-length animated feature film, which was... Snow White. Snow White. And the evil queen in Snow White oh. is patterned after Uta. Is that right? <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Uh. Um, it, it's it first shot in the propaganda war actually is over this. Yeah. But, but the point is, what we see here is a change in worldview with this development of this idea of platonic humanism results in the development of medieval science, and no, that is not an oxymoron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it results in a lot of uh, serious empirical work. It actually changes the way the Bible is studied, at least in Oxford, uh, mm-hmm. via Roger Bacon. And it also produces an enormous change in aesthetics. We see it first in Ramps and in, um, in Nelmburg, but anybody who studies medieval art is familiar with the term Gothic realism. Mm -hmm. And Gothic realism grows out of this. It is an expression, the aesthetic dimension of Platonic humanism, because there's an interest in looking at the world and now portraying the world as it really is, rather than in some stylized, uh, idealized, or abstract form. You know, this is something I think it'd be worth getting into a little bit here. I think most people, when they think about pictorial art, they just think of it in terms of, I like that, I don't like that. They don't think of it as an expression, a philosophical sort of aesthetic, a sort of a, a visualization of a, of a sort of underlying aesthetic or metaphysic that 
that the artist is either trying to express or, or uh, believes in. But I, I think anybody who has an understanding of the way art, you know, has been created over the course of time in the West or, or anywhere in the world, really, uh, there is something more going on in any given work of art. So, in an example, uh, if we think about Monet, you know, everybody, you know, loves water lilies. But the thing that folks, I think, have little uh, sort of a sense uh, of when when they when they look at that is that what what Monet is trying to express is a kind of modern way of thinking about subjectivity in the sense that the light mm -hmm. is is making an impression impressionism mm -hmm. upon the eye and what is being captured and expressed is not water lilies but colors in the mind that have been received through the you know through our eyes it's a it's a subjective experience. So, so um, when we think about it in that way, you can say that you can say that uh, you know impressionism is is a kind of uh, you know a, a, a step in the way, a step along the way to modern art as we know it now, uh, in all of its absurdity and, and ugliness. Mm -hmm. we, now we don't think about that when we think about Monet. We think what a beautiful painting. But if we if we get into what was Monet up to. What was he thinking about when he made it? We, we are appalled. <laughs> and, and one of the things that most people don't realize is that as worldviews shift, the initial expression of the worldview is going to be relatively tame compared yes. to the, you know, from the standards of the previous one. It may be, they may describe it as daring and all that, but it isn't a big shift. However, if that worldview stays in place over time, it will, will eventually lead to all of its logical or more likely illogical consequences. Right. Yeah. So right. Monet may be a first step and people could love Monet and all that because it did in fact engage in a kind of a new and provocative and different way, an aesthetic that was similar to what there was before. But the thinking militates against that. And mm -hmm. so the evolution away from impressionism was almost inevitable as long as those ideas stayed in place. Yeah, it's not long before you get, you know, Picasso, Cubism, surrealism, all of those that things. stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and actually, that's where where I want to go next. Okay, but but uh, did you want to just throw something just in for the, the just for the systematic theologians out there? Um, the period you're talking about is Platonic humanism, is many ways. Um, lionized by figures like John Milbank of the Radical Orthodoxy. Right, right. His wife, Allison, actually writes one on the Gothic realism, uh, a book on it, because they're, they're kind of retrieving a sort of Christian Platonism and um, in the way in which all of art and culture and everything is... Are they at Cambridge? Yeah. Okay, that so makes sense. It does, it is. It is a, it's outgrowth <laughs> of it, but there is a strong attraction to this very... Uh, pivotal point, and I think a, a, a kind of a, a renaissance of it. <laughs> Use that language; it's probably appropriate here. Right. Um, and I think this is why they they wrote that series of essays, trying to engage holistically every every aspect of of, of thought and, and practice under this this kind of full vision, Christian Platonist vision, in which all things are um, part of this this larger transcendent. Um, vision that includes the humanistic. So I think they, they want to use that as the one of the best alternatives um, to the kind of decaying humanism that it has become almost nihilistic and rotten in, in the postmodern variations. Yeah. And in fact, if, if you look at Platonic humanism, 
although the terminology may change over time, it's still the foundation of the scientific revolution. What does Kepler say he's doing? It's yeah. thinking God's thoughts after yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, and you don't really lose this idea in, in the scientific world of natural theology or natural philosophy until about the 19th century. Yeah. You know, if you read the, the transactions of the Royal Philosophical Society, and even the name Royal Philosophical Society, it's a scientific society, but they're still calling it philosophical. If you read those, the transactions through the, 19th cent, uh, through the 18th century, excuse me, what you see is people making scientific observations and studies and things like that. And then in their conclusions, they'll describe what this means in terms of the natural world, but then they'll also discuss the moral and spiritual implications of it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that way of thinking is just totally gone right. when you're getting into the 19th century. But that—that's the continuity going all the way back to this idea of Platonic humanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now that change when you're getting into the 19th century, there are a number of things that change. One of them is we lose the idea that the world. Well, we, we frankly go toward atheism. It's—it's it's no longer a world created by God. It's a world that is eternal. Mm -hmm. The Big Bang hadn't been figured right, out yet. Right. So you've got an eternal universe, therefore you don't need a creator, therefore there's no God. Darwin seals the deal. Yeah. Net result, what happens? Worldview shifts. Science becomes the criterion for knowledge. Uh, as a matter of fact, the word scientia, the Latin word scientia, uh, originally simply meant any field of study that had a defined methodology. Mm -hmm. Thus, theology is a science and mm -hmm. so on. Right. But in the 19th century, it changes its meaning to refer specifically to knowledge of the natural world because that's the only thing that now qualifies as knowledge mm -hmm. because that's the only thing that's fundamentally real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This brings but, up, you know, I think something that's worth reflecting on a little bit with regard to the 19th century. I think that, that a lot of folks, if they were given an op, you know, sort of, if you could live at any time, you know, when would you choose to, to live? <laughs> I think a lot of folks would choose the 19th century, uh, pr primarily because there's enough of the sort of the, the, uh, the ongoing momentum and, and sort of legacy of, uh, you know, the Christian past that's still with us at that time. Uh, and then we're also beginning to enjoy, you know, the benefits of the Industrial Revolution and the and developments in, with, regard to, with regard to technology. And so, it, you know, you get kind of this this point at which uh, you seem to have some of the best of, of two seemingly incompatible worlds. But um, what we're actually experiencing is a kind of tipping point, it seems to me, as you described this. Uh, the 19th century is losing its Christian patrimony. Uh, the West, in the West, I should say, we're losing our Christian past patrimony in the 19th century and becoming something else. Mm -hmm. And there are just all, there, there's just it's so many things that come to mind that, that I think, uh, you know, indicate this uh, in the 19th century. What, now, what, here's one that just seems kind of like out of the blue or kind of crazy to bring up. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, okay? You know, Sherlock Holmes uh, solves mysteries really using the scientific method. Mm -hmm. No, he's, he observes He's able to sort of infer things based on his observations, but it's all kind of a, uh, you know, things are a puzzle that can be solved. So a mystery is, is no longer something hidden within something else, you know, that, that's, you know, um, intended to, to communicate, you know, something of eternal significance to us. It's a puzzle. Mm -hmm. A mystery is a puzzle. 
and it's it's something that can be solved uh, at the level of the you know that we live in. You know, it's not something that it, it's not something like uh, what we see referred to in the New Testament when we talk about a mystery in the New mm-hmm. Testament. New mystery in the New Testament is something that that uh, is real, but is out of view. Not, yeah. not at, it actually isn't evident to the eye. That's or may, right. maybe it's something that's beneath the surface yeah. uh, and can't be perceived by the eye. It can only be understood spiritually. Now, a mystery is strictly, when you use the term mystery today, no one thinks of, you know, the mystery of godliness or, or the incarnation yeah. or yeah. <laughs> anything like that. What do they think about it? They think of Sherlock Holmes, yeah. you know, and, yep. and a puzzle to be solved. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you can add, you also see in this period the marriage of science and technology, yeah. which did yeah. not always go together. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And if you want an example of that, since we're in the realm of fiction, let's look at Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. Or for that matter, modern steampunk. You know, it's, yeah, right, it, it's right. all sort of built around the same kind of idea where, where you get this marriage of science and technology. Yeah. That hadn't happened before. Hmm. And what, so what you see happening is there is a new worldview that develops during this period, typically things like positivism, which among other things would argue, for example, that the only statements that you make that have meaning are those that are empirically verifiable. Right. Mm-hmm. So you you begin getting this reduction of what knowledge is. You begin getting anything that can't be verified empirically, anything that can't be studied scientifically, natural sciences and things like that, gets relegated into this realm of opinion, uh, values, taste, faith, whatever. Um, And in the process, you remove meaning from the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because meaning is not subject to scientific study. Mm -hmm. Meaning is one of these things that's a matter of taste and all of that kind of thing. Uh, Schaefer called this upper and lower story thinking. Uh, A more technical term would be the fact value distinction. Nancy Piercy talks a lot about that. Now, what does this do? First of all, it makes science sort of the gold standard for knowledge Science, but, but the problem is that science itself is not value-free. Right, right. Yeah, this is before Thomas Kuhn's uh, right, right. Scientific <laughs> revolution. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so as an example of science not being value-free, consider uh, when Einstein's equations led to the conclusion there must have been a Big Bang. Yeah. It was roundly rejected by everybody in the physics world because they said... If there's a Big Bang, there has to be a Big Banger. Right, right. <laughs> and that, that is literally what they said. Sure, yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah. You know, and, and what that meant is they had a philosophical pre- pre-commitment to atheism. Right, yeah. And that dictated how they did their science. Right. So the science ends up being an expression of a worldview. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, science helped develop the worldview, the success of science Newton and others is going to lead, it's going to contribute in a major way to the development of positivism. But it's not the only factor. There's also this idea that, frankly, we want to get rid of God. Yeah, right. And then that becomes core yeah. to what is considered a truly scientific worldview. That eliminates meaning. That, in turn, leads to art, changes in art. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, we go back. I mean, we've done enough shows on it with kind of earlier breaks in, in the medieval and even if the details are, are you know, are differ in the ways we read that, I mean, you, what you do notice, though, is with this kind of um, 
with these shifts of emphasis in the medieval period, you start to see things start to become um, things like uh, human, human nature, um, God, human nature, nature itself, history. Um, they, they start to become conceived in ways that they somehow can't go together well that there, there's a kind of um, a friction going on there. So in order for the human to flourish, for example, um, the human has to get rid of some kind of overarching governing God because God is always seen as a threat to, right. to that or, or nature. And then the human and nature become, become, they become seen together, but they also start to become seen at odds. So science and technology become means of which to kind of guide direct so that nature isn't a threat, but is something that, that is conformable to, to our wants or, or our life, our flourishing. And so you, you do see this kind of, um, these kind of frictions about, this is where I think the reductionism comes in, because you start to see people really want to reduce in heavy ways everything to kind of the lowest common denominator, whether it's uh, matter or, or the idealists with, with spirit. And, and so everything is nothing more than an expression of that. Um, but the strange thing that develops is those expressions kind of start to become odds with, with the whole. So you have a worldview that is very, it, there isn't a harmony there. There isn't, I mean, something I want to talk about in the next show, so there isn't sort of this peaceableness there. Um, it's, it's very much something, I mean, I think science, is, science and the Enlightenment tried to develop a synthesis or a series of synthesis to kind of bring about those harmonies. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, here we go with language, anything other than empirical language, right, um, is already a violation of reality, <laughs> you know? Right. So that leaves out just about everything in which the humanist originally or, or, or any culture would have found most significant of the human being. Right. Um, and, and so that becomes nothing, it starts to lose anything significant other than merely being a way in which we enact our material forces. Yeah, it strikes me that uh, you know, as you describe the process there, Tom, that our uh, our tendency to uh, to make make idols uh, when we lose God, we, we're looking for that simple truth or that one thing that it serves as the basis of everything else. Else, and when we lose God as the source and the you know one who is uh, simply God, yeah. then. Uh, it's inevitable that we're going to take something like matter or yeah. what have you and, and, and substitute it uh, for God. And in and, and the process, uh, we've got a dehumanizing kind of uh, dynamic that, uh, that follows. And it's interesting there. Michael Schmitz, I think, is, that's his name. He's a philosopher. Um, and one of the things he talks about is this shift that you're talking about there, Glenn, where we do we, the, re the reductions make a shift from first principles Mm -hmm. which whether it was conceived theologically or Aristotle, to the empirical. But they are still going back to look for something that becomes explanatory of the whole, but the shift moves from, um, you know, sort of the qualitative nature of things to the quantitative yeah, and the right. measurable. Right. And, and that seems to be the big, for him, the big, you know, philosophical shift that took place. And so even in theology, we start to look at that which we can empirically make valid, um, we can quantify, and that rips Scripture, for example, out of its the, the, the kind of um, 
the larger reality vision that it's a part. Scripture doesn't just sit on our lap as a book to be guesserated there. It's a product of in a history, not just a temporal history, but one, a communicative history. That had, and so that's something not, that doesn't play into most interpretations that move to the purely quant, um, quantifiable, that which is measurable through you know, right. historical methods or scientific methods. What, what's worth noting here is that with these changes, the, the shift to quantif quantifiable and those sorts of things, science becomes autonomous. Science had existed, what we would call science, they would call natural theology or philosophy. Even the name itself points to the idea that it isn't autonomous. It is part of something bigger than itself. It's supposed to tell us things, yes, about this world, but beyond this world, it connects into higher realities. Now there is no higher reality to connect right, into. Right. Yeah. That's a worldview commitment. It's a philosophical commitment. It shapes the way science is done. It shapes what is considered legitimate in science. You've got to follow methodological naturalism and things like that. It also, though, ends up with the destruction of meaning and things like that. Mm -hmm. It ends up leading into modern art. Right. Because all that's left for the artist is the subjective, which is not necessarily connected to reality. Right. Reality right. is yeah. objective. Right. The subjective isn't. Right. So you start from Monet, right. but you rapidly move from there into surrealism and all of these other things as a subjective expression of something that has no connection necessarily to anything objective in the external world. Now, let's make a little sort of uh, lateral move here that will sort of, uh, I think startled people, um, revivalism. Revivalism is a 19th century phenomenon, and uh, there were scientific approaches to revivalism. Yeah. You uh, can measure, measure the amount of spiritual activity that's right. by how many people went forward at the end of your church service. That's right. Charles Finney, I that's, believe. Yeah, right? Finney's approach, that's right. So he wanted to, to sort of Empirically, master yeah. empirically the method of creating Christians, making Christians. And, uh, and a lot of the stuff that he said, you know, was uh, stuff that you know was working within a kind of psychological framework as opposed to a you know sort of vert, hor, you know vertical framework. Yeah. But um, getting back to this idea that of of where meaning is d derived from, so most people uh, today, even to this point, uh, who are Christians who've been converted into an evangelical or fundamentalist. Uh, church, or movement, what have you, uh, will identify an experience, something that that they they felt that was meaningful to them. Now, now it may not be as arbitrary and disconnected from, you know, the course of daily life as we might, mm -hmm. you know, fear it could be. It might be the result of some personal crisis or whatever. But often when people are looking for meaning uh, with regard to the Christian faith and, and Christian doctrine and, and even biblical study, they, they're looking for some kind of uh, emotive response and, and, the, and, the, and the faith is sort of generated from not what is seen outside of the self in terms of what's going on in terms of God's activities in the world uh, or in sort of, sort of in things uh, outside of the self, but you know, sort of the, the the authenticating thing, the thing that makes this true, 
is how it's experienced. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a parallel here. I know right. I know there's there are things that tie us into something bigger than ourselves. Yeah, it's it's not I mean I mean think of it in many cases when Christ confronts people who 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 see him. Um, you know, it, it's based on confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Oh, blessed are you above all others. It's not, oh, I had this warm feeling in my chest when you walked by and I knew for some reason. Now, I'm not saying those things are disconnected, but I think what happens is we tend to prioritize in that the revivalist, experiential, empirical context, the, the manifestation, the, the, you know, the, the impact on the affections. But I think this is, I mean, one, one, you know, Jonathan Edwards, I think one of his, his most uh, significant pieces of work was on religious affections, where right. he was kind of dealing with this issue in particular. And he, was, he goes through this whole list of things. We would say, oh, that, they're a Christian. Yeah, they had that. Right. And he's like, no. <laughs> he's just like, you know. And one of the things he does is he retrieves the classical vision of conversion, which is when you can love the moral attributes of God, when you can love God for God's own sake and not for any of this, you, you start to see the marks of true because, you know, flesh and blood cannot do that for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the hymn where he starts to make the mark is it's a moving away from the focus on my interiority, myself, my ben the benefits. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, I mean, I understand the, the Reformation call to this has to be, this has to, we have to be involved in this. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't just a blanket, okay, everyone here who participates in this is, 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 is a Christian, that, that Christ is for us. Um, and it's significant down to the very core of each particular human being. I mean, the Reformation, that was the whole emphasis of the pro nobis, the pro me. But we've taken the pro me and kind of rip, ripped it from the... Well, let, let's tie it into this idea of upper and lower story thinking again. The physical world that's studyable by science is the objective world. Anything that isn't studyable by science is subjective. It is experiential, it is emotional, it is aesthetic, it is fill in the blank there. What that means is that religion is in what Schaefer called the upper story. It's in this world of values and, and so on, not in an objective world. And if, in fact, that's the case, then the only authentic religious experience is subjective. Right. It is emotional. Right. And, and it's interesting because of Schleiermacher, who you know, we know is the father of, of modern uh, well, theological liberalism, um, I, I think he, he was trying to do something there that didn't reduce religion, if you will, even though he put the emphasis on feeling. But his emphasis on feeling was actually to place it in, in, in similar to the way um, aesthetic or transcendental worked with Kant, so that the scientific really could never do its work unless one had properly um, carried it out in light of this, this um, gefühl, this ultimate sense that we owe everything to something beyond ourselves. So he's trying through feeling to move into what had been cut off before with Kant um, through, through reason and knowledge, something transcendent and something else. But that opens up a whole world of dangers. But what we're dealing with is already the fragments of a, of a, of a world that's broken away from Christian view of God. I mean, and I think that's what ends up happening. They're trying to find a way back there and they can't because these divisions and polarizations are dealing with a non-Christian conception of God, whether they're embracing it or rejecting it. And, and because of that, 
it's fragmented. It isn't whole. It can't, it can't be harmonized. It's competition. There's, you know, reason now is cut off from the transcendent when before it had no place other than being able to be caught up in the movement of eternal transcendence. Um, and and I, I think this is what you get here. And so this scientism that develops and this strong empiricism and this worldliness creates conditions for very bizarre conceptions of Christianity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yep. and it also, again, going back to, to one of the themes I was uh, aiming at, it also changes the aesthetics. Just like Platonic humanism gives you a move toward realism, when you move toward positivism, you cut off the objective world from art. And therefore, art must become non-representational. And further... Once you adopt the idea that there is no God, the ancient transcendence of the good, the true, and the beautiful disappear, and so beauty ceases to be a function of art as well. You're trying to express something about reality, but it's a subjective reality, a reality in the, with the absence of a transcendent beauty. Therefore, art becomes systematically ugly. Yeah, and people who are champions of the ugliness and modern art, contemporary art maybe is a better way to put it, uh, they, re, they, they go and uh, take uh, the history of art and, and revise it in, in terms of uh, the way it's uh, understood. Uh, it's, 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 in other words, they don't, they don't seek to understand how artists in previous times, earlier times, understood their own work. Instead, they work uh, anachronistically reading back into the past their own sort of uh, framework. So if nothing means anything intrinsically, then the only reason why someone would say that it means something is because they've got an agenda. They're trying to get something. Uh, they're trying to put something over on somebody else. So contemporary art theory uh, is guilty of libeling the people who thought they were up to something else. So they thought they were, you know, as you described a minute ago or a little while back, Glenn, they thought they were up to trying to understand the mind of God. What contemporary theorists in the arts would say is, no, no, they were playing some kind of power game mm -hmm. on some group of people in the past. Yeah, yeah. And they were even fooling themselves if they believed what they, what they said they, they, they believed. Yeah, it's, it's a re, you know, this is the kind of language you get. <laughs> the real, the, the, the real um, subjects of art are the ones that aren't in the painting. So the significance of the artwork is everything that's not in it. Yeah, let's, <laughs> and let's, try to fit, and let's try to construe what's being done in the most awful way we can possibly imagine it. In well, other words, let, be, let's be as, as ungenerous as possible let, in, 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 in terms of our, you know, Ascribing uh, to to other people and their agency the worst possible motives. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's something I want to return to. You know, next show. But I do want to ask this because maybe it's a, a good point to do it. Um, and and uh, maybe you have a better way of telling the history of this than I do. But why why the turn to the crass, the ugly, the vulgar with such intensity? Yeah, yeah. Um, what 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 is going on there in in you know or or think of it like Roger Scruton's little um, video he did with BBC on art where right. he he juxtaposes sort of the, the the standard high spiritual art 
which some would see is basically just nothing more than a hierarchical imposition of something. But it's clearly right. not. I mean, it, right. it's rapturous, if you will, right. um, compared to the, ba- the most base and disgusting right. um, piss art or something right. along right. Those, those things. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, he, he interviews, was it uh, Marshall? I'm trying to think of who, Deschamps? He, he interviews one of these figures, and, and basically they, they're trying to give some from, uh, you know, uh, justification for it. Right. And he, he says, well, you know, how do you make a big distinction between that and basically dung? You know, he right, uses right. another term. And you can, see, you can see they don't know how to really, right, right. you know, well, there really isn't. Um, but right. why this intense attraction to the vulgar? What, what are they t- attempting? T- I understand they're trying to... Um, well, I think it's desecration. Yeah. I think spiritually what we're talking about is desecration. I remember years ago yeah. when I worked with troubled boys, this was in Kansas City, and I uh, would uh, go to visit them in their in sort of the, uh, the reformatory schools and places that they were kept. Basically, these were these were young men who were just drugged up and dis, and just they're just in a bad way. Um, one of the things that that you saw a lot was feces wiped on the wall. Hmm. Almost, almost without fail, when you get troubled boys, you get this, this behavior. If you have children under three right now, you don't want to <laughs> let them know what we're talking <laughs> about. But, but what, what this confronted me with is yeah. what's really going on here? Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone f- think that a white wall or a, a, just a, simply a painted wall uh, was an offense that needed to be, to be marred in this way? Mm-hmm. What, what are you saying with this? I didn't get anything, uh, any satisfaction from the psychologists and psychiatrists that I, that I would interact with about this kind of thing because mm. they refuse to go where you need to go to yeah. understand it. Yeah. This is in some way an expression of self-loathing but also hatred for anything that's outside the self. Um, this is the kind of thing that we see with, with a fallen creature. There's a kind of loathing... Uh, and hatred for the good because yeah. there's nothing that you can see within yourself that you can admire. So that thing that brings to your consciousness your own failure, failure your own, uh, your own uh, filthiness must be desecrated, Des- must be made filthy. It, it, it's interesting. I was contemplating on this very same thing, um, and, and I was thinking about, there, there is that dimension, you know, uh, in the fall, the, the limit becomes offensive, and, and we, we right. want to tear that fence down. We, we see it as, as holding us back. Not, um, but likewise, and I really haven't thought much along these lines, and maybe you have, um, but there is also a, a rejection of God's just judgment on our sin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because where, where these things do frustrate us is usually because there is a pain related to those limits now because of the fall. Um, and and we, we, we loathe that. Mm-hmm. We hate that someone could draw that line for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something of, I think, the righteousness of God still manifesting that we need to efface. Yeah, well, well I, think, I, I think that there's, there's another dimension as well, though. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, if you read the existentialist, you know, nausea mm-hmm. or, right, or any, right. anything like that, mm. the world is meaningless. Yeah. There, there is nothing here 
that has any meaning. There is no value. And actually, if you accept the initial premises of the worldview, it's where you got to go. Nietzsche yeah. was one of the first to realize this. Yeah. If you live in a nihilistic world, how do you communicate nihilism? You do it by representing everything other than what is here. You go non-representational. You go abstract expressionism. You do all of those kinds of things. But you might have to go further because of the issue of you know, people believe in morality, they believe in goodness, they believe in beauty. Well, that's all a lie. Yeah. So how do you confront the lie? You do it by desecration. Desecration. And yeah, that's, that's the point I think I was reflecting on is the fact that what the existentialist tends to do, and this is something that, again I'm going to return to, is, is that they, they, instead of seeing the world through, through as gift, even though fallen, they just see it basically as fallen, and they accept that as it's given. Uh, it is, there's no gift there. It's, it's the given. And that, that given, that state, and then that state of it, they even are at odds with. And that, that, that at odds is twofold. On the one hand, it is something, because we're made in the image of God, even in the fall, we're made for more. So we, we don't just want to leave it there. So we want something to liberate us from this. We're grown for this. But on the other hand, because we are fallen, we embrace this and then we also want to desecrate even that. And so there's this deeper perversion we end up going into with our art and with, our, um, with, with everything else. So yeah, these are these just things I was thinking about when we were thinking about it. The, the, this ends up in such a deep, perverse cycle. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, what it does is it uh, paradoxically, what we find ourselves is, is thrust into sort of spiritual realities that uh, the world that we find ourselves in denies. So in a sort of backhanded way, uh, you know, the, all the things that are denied are affirmed, if you get what, what I'm getting mm -hmm. at, you know? Anyway, well, we're probably at a point where we should begin to sort of wind this one down. Um, is there anything you want to say as, as we conclude, Tom? No, this is kind of, I would just say this is a stepping stone to the next episode. So uh, get ready. <laughs> That's right. Wait right. a week. <laughs> That's right. Come back next time. <laughs> Anything you want to say as we wrap up? I, you know, I don't know if we got to everything you wanted to talk about, Glenn. Well, well we can next. I, 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 just, just a couple of, of, of quick things. First of all, I thought it would be interesting to see what you guys did with this idea of the connection between yeah, worldview, yeah. science, and aesthetics. Because right. I, I really think there's, there's more to be done with this. Right. Um, but the other thing I, I, I just wanted to mention is sort of coming off of something that Tom said. I believe it was George Weigel wrote a book called The Cathedral and the Cube. Oh, I remember mm. that one. Yeah. yeah. And in it, he was comparing two things in Paris, Notre right. Dame and the Arch at La Défense, which is this just sort of squared off arch. Mm -hmm. Now, I have... I have a degree of loathing for the Arch at La Défense that is kind of hard to express. It, you know, you, it used to be that when you stood at the Place de la Concorde in Paris and you looked down the Champs-Élysées, uh, the Elysian Fields, okay, and you looked at the Arc de Triomphe that Napoleon put up there, it gave you a vista into eternity. It was just, there was nothing there. And then they put up the Ar Arch at La Défense, which is this squared-off arch that is in line with the Place de la Concorde and the Arc de Triomphe, except it's to the left. Mm. 
So it's 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 bumped to the left, and that's intentional yeah. because it, because <laughs> it was the leftist who put it up. <laughs> right, and yeah. the interesting thing is, it, what, what what Weigel did is he he talked about the fact that. The arch is, I think this was Weigel, it might have been some of the people I, w- I talked to in Paris. The arch is just a squared off right. arc. Right. Arch. I mean, and it is simple. There is no challenge to understanding it. Any idiot can look at this and know what, what's going on with it. Like right. most leftist symbolism. Yeah. Where, whereas <laughs> the cathedral is, he put, as he puts it, there's it's something like there's an unholy, there, there is a holy irregularity about it. Yeah, yeah. That that it expresses uniqueness and individuality and all kinds of things in a way that this, well, least common denominator architecture of the arch never does. Right, right. And it seems to me that there's a lot going on in there. That's a, that's a really worthwhile book. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in here that talks about the change in worldview expressed in the change of aesthetics via architecture. Um, and I think we can add science in a number of other fields in this as well. I think that what it really does is show what we've lost. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that people in the future, giving them credit uh, uh, you know, for coming out of a dark age we'll look back on this time that we live in, which we think of as enlightened and <laughs> full of people who are awake, is a benighted time and full of people who are asleep. And um, I think uh, these artifacts like we have in Paris uh, and the contrasts are going to be instructive. And if there's anything that maybe is good that will come out of all that and out of this particular work, uh, perhaps it's the lesson in what not to do uh, that will be told or taught hmm. 200, 300, 400 years from now. Anyway, that's my hopeful yeah. take on uh, that. Uh, another potential hopeful thing is, oddly enough, the fire. And the oh, right, right. <laughs> because they are going through incredible painstaking work and research to try to reconstruct mm. it exactly the way it was. That's wow. great. Uh, and that yeah, exercise right. by itself may prove to be incredibly valuable. Yeah. yeah. For nothing less or nothing else than uh, just a, a little uh, regard for the craftsmen who, and architects and, and the others who were involved in bringing that building into being. Anyway, well, that's a good point to end. And uh, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. And don't forget, don't forget uh, to, uh, you know, uh, give us five stars or whatever you do on whatever platform you listen to this on. It helps. And uh, that's only the second time we've said that in about a year. So, <laughs> yeah, and if you don't like us, don't bother. That's right. That's right. That's, that's, right. Right. that's, right. that's yeah. right. Why are you listening? Why did you yeah. listen this yeah. far if you don't like us? Yeah. But anyway, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.